This week on the show, we have OpenBSD on the Microsoft Surface Go, the FreeBSD Foundation August newsletter, and what's taking so long with Project Trident, people have asked, and package source config file versioning as a result of Google Summer of Code projects, as well as macOS 10 remnants in ZFS code in this week's episode of BSD. Now... BSD Now, episode 262, OpenBSD Surfacing, recorded on September 5th, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we have a wonderful new month for you, as well as a couple of new BSD Now show, uh, yeah, shows for you, of course. And uh, conference season is upon us, so we'll do a couple of pre-recordings, but this one is still live and starts with the following headlines. OpenBSD on the Microsoft Surface Go, in case you're wondering where the title came from. Yep. Uh, so this is a, a post from an OpenBSD user who got it running on their Microsoft Surface Go. They say, uh, for some reason, I like small laptops and the constraints they place on me as long as they're still usable. Uh, I used my old Dell Mini 9 for a long time back in the netbook days and was recently using an 11-inch MacBook Air as my primary development uh, machine for the last few years. Recently, Microsoft announced a smaller, cheaper version of its Surface tablet called the Surface Go, which piqued my interest. So looking at the hardware, the Surface Go is available in two hardware configurations, one with 4 gigs of RAM and a 64 gig uh, eMMC, and another with 8 gigs of RAM and 128 gig NVMe, which will be a lot faster. Mm. So uh, they went for the latter, because if you're doing development, you probably want a bit more RAM. And uh, if you're using the file system, you probably want NVMe rather than eMMC. Uh, both of these ship with an Intel Pentium Gold 4415Y processor, which is not very fast, but it's certainly usable. You know, you want something with low power to make the battery last. Uh, the tablet measures 9.65 inches across, is 6.9 inches tall, and 0.3 inches thick, giving it a 10-inch diagonal 3-to-2 aspect radio, uh, ratio touchscreen uh, covered in Gorilla Glass uh, with a resolution of 1800 by 1200, which is a slightly weird resolution, but uh, better than something lower. <laughs> uh, the bezel is quite large, uh, so that's the bit around the edge of the screen that isn't screen, um, especially with such a small screen. But it makes sense on a device that is meant to be held onto because you want places to hold onto the device uh, where you're not pressing buttons all the time. Yeah. Uh, so then the uh, the keyboard and touchpad are located on a separate removable slab called the Surface Go Signature Type Cover, <laughs> uh, which is sold separately. I opted for the cobalt blue cover, which has a soft cloth-like uh, material. The cover attaches magnetically along the bottom edge of the device and presents a USB-attached keyboard and touchpad device. Uh, when the cover is folded up against the screen, it sends the ACPI sleep signal uh, and is held to the screen magnetically. Uh, during normal use, the cover can be positioned flat on a surface or slightly raised up about three quarters of an inch uh, near the screen for better ergonomics. When using the device as a tablet, the cover can be rotated behind the screen and, you know, like folded over. 
uh, which causes it to automatically stop sending keyboard and touchpad events until you rotate it back. So when you fold the, uh, the keyboard around the back of the device, pressing the buttons doesn't do anything because that would be annoying. Hmm, yeah. Uh, the keyboard has a decent amount of key travel and a good layout with the home end page up, page down being accessible using the function keys uh, plus the arrow keys. Um, but also has dedicated home and page up, page down keys on the F9 through F12 keys, which I find quite useful uh, since keyboard layout is somewhat small. Uh, by default, the F1 through F12 keys do not send the F keys. Uh, they're used as your regular media keys. Um, but if you hold function, you can use them, and there is uh, a function lock uh, ability so that you can make it always be the function keys if you really want. Uh, but that annoyingly keeps a bright function LED illuminated <laughs> uh, to let you know that the, the function lock is on. Uh, the keys are backlit with three levels of adjustment uh, handled by the keyboard using the F7 key. The uh, touchpad on the type cover is a Windows Precision touchpad connected uh, as a USB human interface device. It has a decent click feel, uh, but when the cover is angled up against the Instead of flat on a surface, it sounds a bit hollow and cheap. Hmm. Uh, they also have a uh, Surface Go pen. So the touchscreen is powered by the Elantec chip connected uh, using human interface device over I2C uh, or I2C, uh, which comes uh, which means it also supports the pen input. A Surface Pen digitizer is available separately from Microsoft and comes in the same colors as the, the covers. The pen works without uh, any pairing necessary, uh, though the top button on it works over Bluetooth, so it requires pairing to be able to use. Either way, the pen requires a quadruple A battery uh, inside of it to be able to operate. The Surface Pen can attach magnetically to the left side of the screen so that you don't you lose it. Um, there's also a kickstand can swing out behind the display and to use the tablet in a more laptop form factor which can adjust to any angle up to 170 degrees. The kickstand stays firmly in place uh, whenever it's in position, which also means it requires a bit of force to pull it out uh, when it's initially setting it up on the desk. But uh, along the top of the display, there are the power buttons and physical volume rocker buttons. Uh, along the right side, you have your three and a half inch uh, or three and a half millimeter headphone jack, a USB-C port, uh, power input and micro SD card slot and uh, the kickstand. Uh, charging can be done via USB-C PD or with the dedicated charge port, uh, which accommodates a magnetically attached thin barrel similar to the older MagSafe connectors on a Mac. And the charging cable has a white LED that glows when connected, which is again kind of annoying uh, being near the midline of the screen rather than down by the keyboard. Uh, although unlike Apple's MagSafe, the indicator light uh, does not indicate whether the battery is charged or not. And the barrel charger plug can be uh, placed up or down, but in either direction, I find it uh, puts an awkward strain on the power cable coming out of it uh, because of the vertical position. Mm. Anyway, uh, wireless is provided by an Aethros QCA6174, which provides uh, 802.11ac and Bluetooth, uh, and most of the sensors uh, work, such as the gyroscope and the ambient light sensor. 
the firmware menu can be uh, enabled by holding down the volume up button and pressing uh, the power button and then releasing the volume up uh, when the menu appears. Uh, secure boot as well as various hardware components can be disabled in the menu uh, so that you can install OpenBSD. Hey, very nice. And, yeah, that's uh, a good uh, thing to have. Yep, they also walk through the steps of installing OpenBSD and then there's also some follow-up posts where they talk about various issues they've run into and how they worked around them. Oh yeah, excellent. That's uh, something people can dig into it in case they want to try something uh, like that. Uh, so they have a support summary here at the end saying the AC power works. The ambient light sensor uh, seems to require a new driver and isn't working very well. Audio works, battery status works, the Bluetooth uh, doesn't attach to a driver in FreeBSD right now, or sorry, in OpenBSD, uh, and can be disabled in the BIOS to save battery. The camera does not appear to work. Um, hibernation does work. Um, the micro SD card slot is Realtek and works. The SSD is a Toshiba NVMe and is working. The Surface Pen works. Suspend Resume works. Touchscreen is good. Uh, the USB keyboard via the cover and the touchpad both work. Uh, USB-C works for data and charging. Uh, it uses the Intel DRM KB Lake driver, so video is good. The volume buttons work, and currently the wireless is not working on OpenBSD, but they note that FreeBSD has a work-in-progress port of the uh, Atheros 10K from Linux, which is ISC licensed, uh, and that uh, means that the wireless might work soon. Oh, excellent, yeah. For especially such a device, wireless would be good to have. And All right. uh, to answer the chat room, no, they don't mention what they get for battery life yet. Although oh, yeah. It looks like they've only uh, had it for about a week, so it's going to be very hard to tell. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly nice for traveling around with it to do some uh, small bits of work here and there on OpenBSD. Like, I, I can definitely see the tablet-type computer useful for a number of things, but most of those things I could probably do on my phone. And if I need something bigger, I probably be better served with a regular laptop. Yeah. But some people like something that small. Yeah. It's the middle thing between laptop or phone. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't do programming on a, on a, um, well, a pad or a surface. Yeah, well, thing. it has a keyboard, but even then, it, yeah, yeah, you know, it's I, it's different. Yeah, I'm spoiled somehow. though. Like, I can barely develop on a laptop. I need my <laughs> 4K monitor and my giant loud keyboard to be able to get anything done. <laughs> yeah, I'm slowly getting better at being a road warrior. Yeah, it's not for everyone. I mean, people need the silence at home to concentrate and program. But yeah, people can do it on the road. It's uh, no, for not me. It's mostly everyone. just getting comfortable and having enough stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Speaking of enough stuff, uh, we have uh, headlines as well from the FreeBSD Foundation update. Uh, that's the August issue, and um, starts off. So we have. Uh, introduced this design. We started that off, I think, the last month. So this is the, the second time. And um, 
Here's the message from the executive director, Deb Goodkin, uh, dear FreeBSD community member. It's been a busy summer for the foundation from traveling around the globe, spreading the word about FreeBSD to bringing in new team members to improve the project's continuous integration work. We're very excited about what we've accomplished. Uh, take a minute to check out the latest updates within our foundation-sponsored projects. Read more about our advocacy efforts in Bangladesh and community building in Cambridge. And don't miss the upcoming travel grant deadlines. Well, those are about to end soon, September 7th. In time you watch this episode, it's probably um, out, but um, they are still uh, there by the time you watch this live recording. So, you know, make sure you get on top of those. <laughs> yeah. And um, we have a couple of uh, developer summits uh, also coming up. That's here, our upcoming events uh, section here on the right. And um, yeah, uh, be sure to find out how, our, how your support by donating uh, will ensure the progress continues into the next year because that um, makes it sustainable. Okay, so that's the uh, introductory part. The August 2018 development project update by Ed Mast uh, is basically reminiscing or you know, summarizing the embedded device USB target um, work that's been done. So that's been finished uh, now. So this month, uh, he writes, uh, he's looking back at some work the foundation sponsored last year and how it ties into this year's work to improve the out-of-the-box experience on embedded targets. So that we uh, covered already in the April 2017 development update that um, FreeBSD now runs on many embedded boards that can connect to a USB host. So that's the uh, USB on-the-go or OTG interface. And the host may run Windows, Mac OS X, Linux, FreeBSD, Android, or another operating system with the embedded device appearing as a USB peripheral. Uh, so originally, the, tire, the types of target peripherals supported by FreeBSD was somewhat limited. And so Edward Napirala, um got a, a project grant in 2017, uh, and that project added USB mass storage support using the common access method, or CAM in uh, FreeBSD terms. Uh, that target layer allowing FreeBSD target to export an image file as if it were a mass storage device, like a flash drive. And so this work provided needed infrastructure and was usable as is, although the interface uh, used to set up a device image was still somewhat cumbersome. And uh, earlier this year, Edward completed another sponsored project to better integrate and simplify the use of all the types of USB targets, including mass storage. So if you want to hook up your external drive to it, then this is possible. And this project basically made USB target configuration a runtime configuration setting and added startup scripts to simplify the use of the USB target mode. And the configuration and use of the new scripts is fully documented in the FreeBSD handbook as well. That is part of the, the contract that the developers um, sign up to when they do a project uh, fund so that it's also documented so that people know how to use it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, the result of these two projects is available in the upcoming FreeBSD 12 uh, 0.0 release. Uh, we also have updates from the uh, fundraising side. Uh, Ziplink, uh, which specializes in optimizing wireless links, WANs, or wireless, uh, yeah, wide area networks, uh, or any network that experiences high latency, asymmetric allocation, or high bit error rates. Um, they became recently a silver sponsor or silver partner for the FreeBSD Foundation. Thank you very much for those. They now join a growing list of companies like NetApp, Microsoft, Tarsnap, VMware, and NeoSmart Technologies that are stepping up and showing their commitment to FreeBSD. And with that um, amount of work, they provide a lot of things that the foundation couldn't do without that monetary contribution. So um, that's pretty much listed here. 
And yeah, we also an update uh, from the release engineering team on the work to get FreeBSD 12.0 out, which is uh, still ongoing, as you might know. Uh, there's a nice recap from BSD Cam uh, by. Where's the byline? It's much longer than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit and longer. Very good summary by Deb uh, talking about all the things that happened at the summit. It was. <laughs> Uh, most of us were there for most of a week, so uh, quite a bit happened. That was, that was certainly an event of its own and a, a well worth um, attending. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also the uh, FreeBSD Developer Summit call for participation for the uh, upcoming conferences that are uh, scheduled to happen uh, throughout the rest of the year. So in October 2018, there's the FreeBSD Developer and Vendor Summit on the Thursday before MeetBSD. So that's October 18. And um, the summit will be held in conjunction with MeetBSD, so basically in the same room or rooms. Uh, developers can register uh, using the link below if they haven't done so already. And um, there's a little fee here of $75 for each attendee to actually cover the lunch during the summit, and the rest is sponsored uh, by the foundation. The um, Yeah, so if you're going to meet BSD, you might as well spend an extra day with us uh, doing developing and or uh, <laughs> talking about developing and upcoming things that we plan for upcoming releases. So we also have our uh, board member, Philip Papps, going to a lot of conferences that are not typically in the spotlight of um, major uh, efforts, but it's good to have people there as well. So there's Sanok 32 and Coscup 2018, and he went to both of them. Uh, so Sanok is in Bangladesh and Coscup is in Taipei, and um, he's basically showing presence of FreeBSD and uh, engaging people in the area to also become contributors of uh, various kinds handing out uh, material flyers stickers that are there they were always popular around the world wherever you we go with the stickers we don't leave with stickers in our bags because they all go out and people take them so um uh, we also sponsor these events so a little bit of um, support for these conferences to make them happen from the foundation and um he presented uh, uh, on using FreeBSD on ARM64 at both conferences and at Sanok. He's also uh, he taught a workshop on hardening servers using jails and PF and presented a brief introduction to ZFS. Hey, that's great. Yeah, so maybe mm -hmm. that hardening servers workshop would be also good to have in other uh, areas of the world. I mean, this is pretty much a universal topic to, to uh, have. Yeah, uh, and... In September and October, Philip will be in Sudan at the Sudanese Network Operator Group and at uh, Tonga Cert in Tonga. Mm, oh, yeah. That's also an interesting uh, spot. And the um, letter closes with the MeetBSD 2018 Travel Grant application. As I said, September 17 is the uh, – September 7th, sorry. Uh, 7th is the deadline. And if you want to apply for a travel grant to meet BSD, if you just need a little bit of money to get there and want to meet the BSD folks, what better way to uh, use that travel grant? And hurry up. It's September 7th when the deadline uh, is, and afterwards it's closed. You cannot get a new grant or a grant at all. And then we'll decide um, on the number of people that are going. And um, yeah, what do you have to lose? The only thing is that you get the grant or don't get the grant. So you might as well apply. And um, 
yeah, that pretty much closes the, the newsletter. Again, if you're interested in the work that the FreeBSD Foundation is doing, then um, check on our newsletter and um, donations are always welcome. We are looking for um, big and small donations, doesn't matter, and every little bit can make a difference. So, news roundup this week starts with Project Trident. Remember last episode? That was already a little bit of a glimpse into the Trident future. Uh, but this one asks, what's taking so long? Yeah, you know, they told us we would have something by the end of August. <laughs> yeah, no pressure there. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, good to ask. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is what uh, is covered on the project-trident.org website. And... Um, the big headline is, well, what is taking so long? Ah, the short answer is, it's complicated. Uh, Project Trident is quite literally a test of the new TrueOS build system. As expected, there have been quite a few bugs, undocumented features, and other optional bits that we discovered we needed uh, that were not initially present. All of these things have been addressed and retested in a con uh, constant back-and-forth process. While Ken and JT are both experienced developers, neither of them has done this kind of release engineering before. You know, JT has done some release engineering back in his Linux days, uh, but the TrueOS and FreeBSD build system are very different. Both Ken and JT are learning a completely new way of building a FreeBSD slash TrueOS distribution. Uh, please keep in mind that no one has used this new TrueOS build system before. Uh, so Ken and JT are, uh, you know, want to not provide uh, not only provide a good Trident release, but also provide a model and a template on how other people can use the TrueOS build system to make their own distribution. Yeah, because that is actually one of the goals that other people can build upon their work. Yeah, um, I've been playing with uh, Pudrier Image to build releases, and I'm really liking it. And uh, I think going forward, I would like to rebuild the FreeBSD uh, release building system into that. Uh -huh. uh, I don't know what everybody else thinks of that idea. But uh, it definitely doesn't have to replace the FreeBSD release one. But I'd like to be able to build as much as close as possible to what is uh, a FreeBSD release from Pudrier, because uh, it's so much nicer doing it in a nice, clean jail and so on. Yeah, without any other uh, stuff around it. But yeah, back to the article. Um, <clears throat> the next question is, where are we now? Uh, through perseverance, trial and error, and a lot of head-scratching, we reached the point of having successful builds. It took a while to get there, but now we are simply waiting uh, out a few bugs with the new installer that Ken wrote, as well as finding and fixing all the new Xorg configuration options, which recently landed in FreeBSD as part of the update of Xorg. Uh, we also found that a number of services have been removed or replaced between TrueOS 18.03 and 18.06, uh, and so those needed to be adjusted uh, in their port of switching over to OpenRC. Uh, and they needed to adjust what they consider the base services for a desktop. All of these issues have been resolved, and we are continually rebuilding and pulling in new patches from TrueOS as soon as they are committed. In the meantime, uh, we have made an early beta available uh, for Trident, uh, available to users in the Telegram channel if they uh, really want to try it out that early. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and do you foresee any other delays? At the moment, we're doing uh, many iterations of testing and tweaking the install ISO and the package configuration in order to ensure that all the critical functionality works out of box, like networking, sound, video, basic apps, etc. 
while we do not foresee uh, any other major delays, sorry, uh, sometimes things happen that are outside of our control. Uh, as an example, one of the recent delays that hit, uh, hit recently was completely unexpected. We had a hard drive failure on our build server. Uh, up until recently, the aptly named Poseidon build server had been running on Micron M500 DC drives, but that drive is now uh, constantly reporting errors. Despite ordering a replacement Western Digital Blue SSD several weeks ago, we just received it this past week. The drive is now installed uh, with the builder back in full functionality, but we also uh, lost many precious days because of the delay. Hmm. Need more mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> uh, the build server for Project Trident is very similar to the one that JT donated to the TrueOS project. Uh, JT, in fact, has another DL580G7, so he donated one of those to the Project Trident for their build server. Uh, Poseidon now has 256 gigabytes of RAM. That's 64 4 gigabyte sticks, uh, which is a smidge higher than what the uh, uh, TrueOS builder actually has. Uh, <laughs> since we were talking about hardware, we probably should address another question we get often. What hardware are the devs testing this on? Uh, so let's look at that. Mm -hmm. So here's the developer hardware. Do you want to answer the first one? Oh, sure. Um, so JT has, uh, as his main test box, a custom-built Intel i7-7700K system running a meager 32 gigabytes of RAM and a dual Intel Optane 900P drives and an NVIDIA 1070 GTX with 4K Acer monitors. No, because, four 4K monitors. Four, yeah, four of them, yeah, so monitoring all over. Uh, yes, use a, a Lenovo X250 ThinkPad alongside a desk full of X230Ts and X220 ThinkPads, and one of which he gave away at Southeast Linux Fest this year, which you can read about uh, in the link provided. And However, it's not done, so um, there, being a complete hardware hoarder, JT also tests on several Intel NUX and his second laptop, a Fujitsu T904, not to mention a plethora of HP DL580 servers, a DL980 server, and a stack of BL485C, BL460C, and BL490C blades in his HP C7000 and C3000 blade center chassis. That the usual thing that you have at home. Maybe it's time for an intervention of this hardware collection habits. <laughs> yeah. Everyone uh, needs a hub. He's got a bit more stuff than I do in his garage. <laughs> yeah, and he uses that. It's it's not just collecting mm -hmm. dust, it's um yeah, in putting yeah, it to good use. It's turning electricity into heat. <laughs> uh so Ken for a laptop has his third generation X one carbon and an old triple E PC T one oh one MT. Uh, which is dual core 1 gigahertz and 2 gigabytes of memory, which is uh, very useful for testing how it works on lower end hardware. As far as workstation goes, his office computer is an Intel i7 with uh, an NVIDIA GTX 960 uh, running three 4K monitors. I thought I was, uh, you know, pretty high up there with my one 4K monitor and a second 1080p monitor, but these guys have a lot of monitors. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's needed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he has a couple of other custom-built workstations, including an AMD and another Intel with an NVIDIA card. Uh, generally, he uh, assembles random workstations built out of hardware that he can acquire cheaply. 
Mm, makes sense. Well, note that these guys need to run this stuff through a spell checker. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, Tim, who's also helping out with the project, has a third gen X1 Carbon as well, and a custom built desktop using a an i5 4440, 16 gigs of RAM, and uh, and video graphics card. Uh, and Rod, uh, no one uses knows what Rod uses. <laughs> like, uh, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe we know in the future. Or he has some yeah. very high-tech stuff. Okay, so that's the uh, article. And um, yeah, we definitely look forward to Project Trident being released. It takes as uh, long as it takes. As much uh, bug fixing as done up ahead, the, the less bugs are in the final versions. So that's my take on that. Uh, next up, we have uh, something from the NetBSD Google Summer of Code. Uh, they have a package source config file versioning now. And so um, they have an actual series of reports from the course of the summer in this Google Summer of Code project. So this period is pretty much over now, but um, it's interesting to see what uh, students came up with. And the goal of this project is to integrate a VCS, like a version control system, your CVS, subversion, your Git, whatever it is, to make managing local changes to config files for packages easier. And that's right, so you, like, you know, you have a mail server installed. Or I think they use uh, Spam Assassin as an example. You have SpamD installed, and then you upgrade it, and now there's some new config parameters. But your config file doesn't have them. Well, if the package just installs the new default config file, it undoes all your settings. But the newer version might not run off your config file from the older version. And, you know, you don't want to have to manually do it all. How do we merge the changes? Mm, yeah. Good task to give a student to work over at that on over the summer, and that's um, more details in the NetBSD blog here by uh, Leonardo Takari. And um, starting with or well, preparing these packages or packages may install code, uh, both machine executable and interpreted programs, uh, documentation and manual pages, source headers, shared libraries, and other resources such as graphics elements, sounds, fonts, document templates. That's pretty much any uh, kind of stuff in the package or source repo. Translations, config files, a combination of them. And so all these config files uh, are usually uh, the mean uh, the means through which the behavior of software without a user interface is specified. And this covers parts of the operating systems, the network daemons, the programs in general that don't come in an interactive graphical or textual interface as the principal mean for setting options, uh, which is a thing that um, is very convenient to have, but if there's no such thing, then it's getting more difficult. Uh, but system-wide configuration for operating system software tends to be kept under slash ETC, while configuration for software installed via package source because it's third-party software, ends up under local base slash etc, for example, slash user slash package slash etc. Because the BSDs are clean and put stuff where it should be separate from the operating system config files. Um, software packaged as part of package source provides example configuration files, if there are any, which usually get extracted to local base slash share slash examples slash package base. And don't worry, automatic merging is disabled by default. Uh, you can set the VCS auto merge variable to enable that. And in order to avoid breakage, uh, install configuration is backed up first in the VCS, separating the user modified files from files that have been already automatically merged in the past. And in order to allow the administrator to easily restore the last manually edited file in case of a breakage. So you can uh, retry that with the old config. 
VCS functionality only applies to configuration files, not RCD scripts, and only if the environment variable no $VCS is unset. Right. So uh, if the, you set no VCS, it will not do any of this. Yeah, that will ignore completely all the new things. Um, the version control system to be used as a backend can be set through $VCS. And uh, if it defaults to RCS, the version control system, which works only locally and doesn't support atomic transactions, it's a start, but yeah. Yeah, RCS is kind of <laughs> the underlaying bits that came before um, CVS. CV. So it's yeah. really old. Mm. And other backends, such as CVS, uh, are supported and will come. These being used uh, as the explicit request of the administrator need to be already installed and placed in the directory part of uh, the, the, your path variable. Right. So uh, I think RCS is included in the base system in NetBSD, and that's why it's the default. Um, but if you install CVS or Git or whatever, you can use that. And uh, at that point back in July, uh, only RCS and I think CVS were supported. But as the project went on, it added the other ones, and you'll see that in the additional entries. Yeah, so that's the next entry here, because there's um, an update on that project. Uh, so Package Source is now able to deploy configuration from packages being installed from a remote, site-specific VCS repository. User-modified uh, yeah, user files are always tracked even if the auto-merge functionality is not enabled, and a new tool, Package Conf Track, exists to manually store user changes made outside of package upgrade time. So you can check in changes you made to the config file at any time uh, so that the next time you do an upgrade, it will merge them for you. No, oh, that's convenient. And yeah, version control software is executed as the same user running package underscore add or make install unless the user is root. In this case, a separate unprivileged user Package VCS conf gets created with its own home directory and a working logging shell, but no password. And with the home directory being set to, um, not or not being strictly necessary for this one, it exists to facilitate um, the migrations between repositories and VCS changes. It also serves to store keys uh, used to access remote repositories. Yeah, so separate user, separation of privileges, that's always good to have. And now using git instead of rcs is simply done by setting vcs equals git in package underscore install.conf. And yep. then you so, have different versions. By the system. second report in their project here, they had git working in addition to uh, CVS and rcs. Ah, oh, that's uh, what people are looking for, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. And they, in the next report, they say that configuration file versioning in package source part three, that now remote repositories also work with SVN and Mercurial. Yep, and they show how to do that. If you're interested, you can go read about that. Mm -hmm. Then they have a part four that says configuration deployment, package tools, and the future. Um, support for configuration tracking is in scripts. Package installed scripts that get built into binary packages and are run by package underscore add upon the installation. Uh, the idea behind the proposal suggested that users of a new feature should be able to store revisions of their installed configuration files and of package provided default, both in local or remote repositories. So with this capability in place, it doesn't take much to make the script pull the configuration from a VCS repository at the install time. And that's what the setting VCS conf pull equals yes in package underscore install conf after having enabled VCS conf underscore conf does. 
So you are free to use official third-party pre-built packages that have no customizations in them, enable these options, and point package source to a private conf repo. And if that contains custom configuration for the software you are installing, an attempt is made to use it and install it on your system. And if that fails, package install will fall back to using the defaults that come inside the package. RC scripts are always deployed from the binary package, and if they are exist, and package underscore rcd underscore scripts equals yes is set in package install conf or the environment variable. Right. So this means that you can now, you know, if you have many servers using package source, you can say, hey, go over here in Git or Subversion or Mercurial and get the configuration file that I've already customized for that version. Yeah, this is for our environment at the company. This is for my own private environment, so that's a different mm-hmm. repo, and that makes it much more uh, likely that people run these uh, their own configurations because they need some maybe LDAP support for a, a company or something. So that's typically done in a custom package. And this will be part of packages, not a separate solution like configuration management tools. Uh, it doesn't support running scripts on the target system to customize the installation. It doesn't come with its domain-specific language. It won't run as a daemon or require remote logins to work. Uh, it's quite limited in scope, but you can define a role for your system in package underscore install or in the environment, and package source will look for configuration uh, that you or your organization crafted for such a role, like public, standalone web server versus reverse proxy, or a node in the database cluster. There are a lot of possibilities. Yeah, that's cool. It's interesting to think of building more of that into the operating system and not requiring something as heavyweight as as Ansible or Salt or Puppet. Mm. Yeah, because these are basic tasks like... uh, Every operating system needs a certain set of base packages installed, and why not customize them and pre-build them in your own environment so you just have to pull them down from a a network server in your local LAN. So now we have an interesting tidbit of history uh, from our (laughs) friend uh, Chris Seibenman. A little bit of the one-time macOS version of ZFS still lingers in the source code. Yeah, way back when, when they tried to port that to macOS and had actually good well, they progress successfully on that. ported it to, to Apple and then yeah. didn't end up using it. It's really oh, dear. one of the biggest shames in the history of computing. But anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> once upon a time, Apple came very close to releasing ZFS as part of macOS 10. Apple did this work uh, on its own copy of the ZFS source tree, as far as anyone knows, but... Uh, But people at Sun knew about it, and it turns out, uh, even today, there's still a little bit of lingering uh, signs of hope uh, for the perhaps prepared for ZFS port in the ZFS source tree. Uh, Well, sort of. It's not quite in code. But uh, lurking in the function that reads ZFS directories and turns a ZFS directory entry, a zap, into a file system independent format that the kernel uh, wants you know, for VFS, uh, it says, you know, object number equals ZFS durant object, uh, which is a macro, and you give it the uh, zap dot first integer. And basically it uh, gets the object number uh, of the file that is being looked up. And it says uh, Mac OS 10 uh, can extract the object type here, uh, such as, you know, type equals durant type. Um, so specifically, this is in ZFS underscore reader and ZFS uh, vnops.c. 
So ZFS maintains file type information in directories. This information can't be used on Solaris and thus Illumos, uh, where the overall uh, kernel doesn't have this in its file system independent directory entry format. But it can be used on OS X, like Darwin, because a Mac OS is among the Unixes that supports a D underscore type. Uh, so you can actually, it, as part of the file system, indicate what type of a file the, the file is. Uh, the comment itself dates all the way back to uh, a commit in 2007, which includes uh, the change, you know, reserve bits in directory entry for file type. Uh, so they added support in ZFS to deal with that extra type field. Uh, and that created this whole setup. It says, uh, Chris says, I don't know if this file type support was added specifically to help Apple uh, in their OS X port, uh, but it's certainly possible. And in 2007, it seems likely that this port was at least in the minds of the ZFS developers. It's interesting, but... Uh, understandable that FreeBSD uh, didn't seem to have influenced them in the same way, at least as far as comments in the source code go. Uh, this file type support is equally useful on FreeBSD, and the FreeBSD ZFS port dates back to about 2007 as well. Mm. Regardless of the exact reason that ZFS picked up maintaining the file type information in the directory entries, it's quite useful for people uh, using both FreeBSD and Linux uh, that it's there. File type information is useful for any number of things, and the ZFS file systems can and do provide this information to those other unices, uh, which helps make ZFS feel like a truly first-class file system, uh, one that supports all of the expected general file system features. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's very cool. That, mm -hmm. There's a little bit of code in there still, a little comment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Maybe in the future they figure out, well, Apple File Systems isn't that great, so they should go back to something that actually is tried and true and is used around the world in production servers. And uh, Jörg Lundman, who maintains the OpenZFS on OS X port, uh, links specifically, he says, for completeness sake, here's where we actually set the D underscore type uh, in the extended reader support on the uh, OS X port of OpenZFS. Mm. So you can actually see where they're making use of that. Yeah. Well, and there, there's still a port for uh, OpenBSD, uh, for, uh, for OpenBSD, for uh, OpenZFS on Mac OS X. So if people are it's, it's, experimental, uh, they can try it out. It yeah, should work, uh, apparently. Yeah, it works very well. The uh, My Mac has it. Uh, it's maintained and kept very up-to-date. Um, lots of people use it. Um, it's harder to use it as your root file system, but it's a great way to store a bunch of files on your Mac in such a way that you can ZFS send them to other places. Mm. Um, and if FreeBSD had better support for the keyboard and trackpad on my Mac, I would even dual boot uh, my Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, a little bit of an issue, but uh, yeah, that, that it's 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 going, it's coming. We will see something um, in the future, maybe. And who knows what the future of OpenZFS will be on these different uh, operating systems? It's interesting to see. Yep. Yeah. 
So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. And speaking of migrations between operating systems, this one uh, we have here is a Mac-like FreeBSD laptop, uh, very similar to a really Mac. (laughs) Yeah, so they say, uh, this is a tour of my FreeBSD laptop. Uh, I've set a goal of configuring a Unix laptop uh, with focused and effective user interface, suitable for all types of work. Uh, My point of reference was a 13-inch Retina MacBook Pro from 2015. Uh, so they've actually configured their FreeBSD machine to look like a Mac. Yeah, on the first view, it's like, oh, that's familiar. The taskbar and uh, yeah, icons on the screen, of course, background images can be copied. <laughs> but there's a little beastie down there in the lower right corner. And they walk through how they do that and some of the other things they do, including uh, doing rsync backups of their... UFS file system. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. if you're pretending to be like a Mac, <laughs> you have to pretend you don't have ZFS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. But once you've done ZFS send a couple of times, then you don't want to miss that wire speed uh, power of transfers. But yeah, yeah uh, visually about, it's cool. Uh, you know, what's missing for them uh, and so on. Yeah, very nice. Uh, people are imitating uh, good design, I guess. And yeah, yeah in case you uh, just wanted... Within the context of my daily desktop tasks, uh, FreeBSD running on the ThinkPad X1 Yoga subjectively performs as fast as the MacBook Pro of an equivalent generation, if not even faster. There are no freezes, reboots, or other disturbances. The sleep and resume functions uh, work seamlessly. The battery life is about five hours, uh, depending on the task, which is uh, not as good as MacBook Pro. However, you know, if you've ever seen the inside of a MacBook Pro, you tell it's all battery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, potentially there's improvements to the battery life by using more uh, power management tools and so on. Okay. But sounds like they're quite happy with uh, FreeBSD. Yeah, best of both worlds. Uh, next thing is uh, sync thing on FreeBSD. That's the proper pronunciation. Yep. Uh, it's um, of course from Vermaden uh, or Vermaden. I need to figure Vermaden out the proper pronunciation at one point. It's um, Polish, so I don't know. Blogging each week something for us. That's at, or at least um, not just exclusively for us, but for people out there. And um, this one talks about sync thing on FreeBSD. Yes, I know uh, SyncThing works quite well because they use it uh, in the FreeBSD cluster. I think is how we get the package mirrors synced out is uh, uh, using SyncThing. Okay. So that's a little bit of a prep work to uh, configure the hosts. And yeah, then... Uh, uh, but in general, SyncThing is, I guess, the best way to describe it would be a, a Dropbox-like thing between your own machines. Uh, it lets you sync files from uh, between a bunch of your machines and so on. It seems Without. really nice. Ah, so no rsync. You just drop it in one directory and the, all the other machines get it? Yeah, except for it does it two-way better than rsync can. Mm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right, so oh, cool. There's access to graphics. files on many of the machines. Yeah, with a web interface. And uh, yeah, cool article as, as always uh, with a lot of info and screenshots. <clears throat> yeah, if uh, it's something that interests cool. you, definitely check it out. It covers uh, how to set it up and all the tweaking. Mm-hmm. And we have a new ZFS boot environments tool, uh, also by Vermaden, Vermaden uh, documented here. 
if you remember, he originally started the um, BEADM tool on the FreeBSD forums. At least that's right. where he there promoted was, uh, it. There was a manage BE script, and then so he created BEADM and tried to make it more like the um, uh, the Solaris one. The Solaris one, uh, which I guess was a. And then there was a fork for making a version that supported the separate boot pool and a fork with support for Linux. And then those were all pushed back into his thing and you uh, get it all set up and he has his original thread. There's also a Python tool called uh, Zedenv, Z-E-D-E-N-V, which does a bunch of that. Mm -hmm. But this new tool is something separate from all these. But it's building upon the functionality that they right. provided. Right, so uh, he says that uh, at the Polish BSD user group meeting number three, uh, Pavel Doadek, who did the original port of ZFS to FreeBSD, suggested that they uh, he should try to get the BEADM tool into the FreeBSD-based system. Uh, and uh, when he created the PR about that is when he first learned about BECTL, uh, the summer code project I helped run last year, uh, to basically make a C version of BEADM. Uh, and he says uh, that he will, of course, maintain and update the BEADM tool still, and it'll be available via FreeBSD ports, uh, because having such a tool written in POSIX shell allows fast debugging and easy changes. Uh, but the BECTL tool uh, is basically just a C re-implementation of BEADM. They're designed to have the same command interface and so on and be uh, easy to swap back and forth between them. And it's already built in, starting with FreeBSD 12 Alpha 2. Oh, yeah. That's uh, around the corner. <laughs> yeah, it's it's coming, and people can use it. Yeah, he found a, a bug where using the BECTL rename feature um, didn't deal with the fact if the boot environment we're trying to rename was mounted. Uh, but we've since fixed that. Uh, it was just... Oh, yeah. Basically adding the, the flag similar to dash U when you do a rename. Uh, and so that's fixed now. Excellent. So this will be part of 12 and no one will notice that there was a difference there. So I guess this is now um, becoming the de-, the de facto tool for boot environment creation and management. That's hopefully the case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. And the next item we have is that my system's time was so wrong that even NTPD didn't work. Oh, dear. What could be wrong with that clock? Oh, uh, this well, is I think over. the default NTPD will not shift your time zone if it's more than a, a thousand seconds out of date, uh, which can definitely happen in VMs if you uh, pause the VM and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but you... Uh, there's an extra flag you can pass to NTPD to deal with that, uh, or you can uh, use something NTPD first uh, and force sync the time. Sure. And the yeah, that's the description here in the article uh, how you would do that, and um, in case you encounter this problem, and um, well, of course there are other NTP daemons to sync your clock, but for NTPD there's a couple of. Um, yeah. Things that <clears throat> so I think in particular that. they're using OpenBSD, so that's OpenNTPD. So it mm-hmm. has a feature called a constraint check, where it will connect to uh, a well-known public server like Google.com or something like that, and look at the date stamp in the HTTPS response. And using that, it can 
make sure that the NTP server isn't lying to you. So it doesn't use the date stamp from Google because that won't be accurate within a couple of seconds, really. Um, but using it to do a sanity check on what the NTP server is telling you so that a rogue NTP server can't lie to you and tell you, you know, it's two years ago or something. Uh, the problem they ran into is their clock was so out of sync that they couldn't make the TLS connection because the certificate from Google oh. was only valid starting, you know, six months ago. And if your time is two years ago, you're saying, well, the certificate you're presenting is from the future. It's not valid I cannot yet. possibly use that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it couldn't do the constraint check either uh, to verify that the time server wasn't making things up. Ah, deadlock here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's... Um, it's good to know that there are workarounds for this and people can actually set the proper time on their machines. Okay, um, then we have OpenSSH 7.8 or 7.8 patch level 1 available as of the 24th of uh, August 2018. And over at OpenSSH, you can find the release notes for that. Yep. Um, one of the big changes is that uh, SSH-keygen now uses the OpenSSH format for private keys by default rather than the old OpenSSL PEM format. Uh, the OpenBSD format supported in OpenSSH since 2014 and described in the protocol.key file in the source offers substantially better protection against offline password guessing and supports key comments in private keys. If necessary, you can still generate the old type by adding the dash M PEM uh, flags to the uh, SSH keygen. Oh, okay. Um, SSHD has removed internal support for S slash key multi-factor authentication. You can still use it via PAM or BSD auth. It's just not going to be part of SSH itself. Um, SSH, the, the client, uh, removed vestigial support for running SSH uh, as setUID. This used to be uh, required for host-based authentication in the long, long gone our host style authentication, but it's not been necessary for a very long time. Attempting to execute SSH um, as a set UID binary or with a UID that's not your effective UID will yield a fatal error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it's not just new features all the time, it's also polishing and removing all of the old stuff that uh, should leave uh, the system so that you don't have to maintain it anymore. Yep. Very nice. Uh, if you're interested, check it out. They have a full change log of all the other less uh, likely to surprise you changes. Mm -hmm. Very good. And we have a couple of uh, announcements for upcoming BSD conferences. Uh, first one is the EuroBSDCon. Early bird re registration period is about to end, so be quick about it. If you want to attend, get a bit... Um, well, actually, uh, looking at this access. now, the early bird oh, period has wait. ended. So Already, yeah, this sorry. This is the punishment you get for not listening to us the last four times we told you to register. Uh, but exactly. hurry up and register, because uh, we would love to see you at EuroBSDCon in Romania. Yes, two days of tutorials or Dev Summit and two days of talks is something that you shouldn't miss if you're in the area. And uh, in October, we have MeetBSD, October 18th till the 20th. is uh, coming up also fast. Hurry up and register. Yes, uh, early registration has ended there uh, the other day as well. Um, <laughs> but hurry up and register because we would still like you to come. 
Yeah, the schedule will soon be published. Um, we have, um, from the program committee side, uh, selected a number of uh, speakers. And um, stay tuned. It will come out soon enough. And the last thing, uh, looking into the next year already, in March, there will be Asia BSDCon 2019. Uh, I think we announced this already, but it's better to have it twice. Uh, this is March 21st well, yeah. to the 24th. Yeah, we kept telling people about Euro and and uh, MeetBSD, and they seem to have missed the early bird registration. So, uh, yeah, start planning to take off a week of time uh, in the late-ish March uh, to come to Tokyo. Uh, yeah. Pro tip, if you're going to stay a bit extra, come early rather than late, because that's when most other people will be there. Yeah, exactly. Do a little bit of touristing, explore the city or the surrounding uh places um it's easy to reach with the high-speed trains and yeah japan is just amazing uh to to see especially during sakura time in, in the mid of march which typically starts the whole thing all right yeah this on to feedback and questions uh, yep. Uh, this week we have a couple of questions, and but keep sending them. Uh, send them to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Otherwise, this would be a very uh, empty section here. So this one uh, from Will starts with kudos and a question. Uh, he writes, Well, Benedict and Alan, great show. I really appreciate you all uh, and your dedication every week. Well, thank you. The uh, content you pick is great, and I love the Q&A at the end of the show, which uh, this appears in now. Uh, your expertise is profound, and yet you manage to make it accessible and interesting to the noobs. Well, we've been noobs, um, even if you don't uh, <laughs> think about it. Uh, yeah, we've been there once, so we might as well give a little well, bit yeah, of our yeah, knowledge. I wasn't a, a developer a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, see, it's, there's a little career ladder we can climb up to slowly but steadily if we keep... Uh, uh, with the project and anyway. uh, yeah, and engaged. So uh, while he's not a technical, uh, technically a noob, he writes, I appreciate this approach. And he has used Unix since 1991, but only as a regular user, browsing, email, FTP, text manipulation, occasional programs in Perl, C, etc. Uh, since 2005, uh, he's been using a macOS system and uh, become more and more of a power user. And a few years ago, he set up a FreeBSD server with ZFS, excellent, on root and moved my Git repo and rsync backups to that server. There was a learning curve, of course, but it was short and the system has run flawlessly since I set it up. Excellent. Uh, a month ago, I bought a used Lenovo ThinkPad T430 and recently installed FreeBSD 11.2 on it as the main operating system with a backup Linux 18.3 instance in case I need something and can't figure it out in FreeBSD. My plan is to learn everything I can about FreeBSD, how it boots, loads, does what it does, halts, etc. I'm reading Kirk McCusick's latest book and studying the internals, and so far it's been a blast. The FreeBSD community is very inviting and helpful. Thank you both for your part in making for a friendly but informed community. Yeah, we're not the only ones contributing to that, but there are other people. But yeah, it's in generally a, a nice community, a friendly one. Uh, in the process of doing my explorations, there have been not a few mishaps. I've blown away my bootloader. Ah, well, we've all been there. Or lost it somewhere. I'm not sure what happened exactly, but it's unpleasant. I've misconfigured my bootloader and not been able to use the correct incantation to get it to boot. I've mistyped kernel and backing up the kernel and had to go hunting for it while reading up on boot, boot zero config, loader, etc. 
So my question for the Zen masters of the BSD, oh, come on, uh, is this. Is there a simple save the loader and its config files here uh, for easy restore type strategy that hardcore developers know about? If so, please share it. Okay, uh, a couple things. So A, if you're using ZFS boot environments, then you get, you know, you have snapshots of the whole thing no matter what. Um, for the loader, there is a trick. Every time you make install world, it backs up your old loader as loader.old or zfsloader.old. Uh, when the system's booting up, if, if you want to know more about the process when the system boots up, there's uh, my paper from Asia BSDCon last year. 2016, I think. The 2016 one. Um, yeah. <clears throat> or no, 2017. One of those. Anyway, um, that covers the process. But basically, uh, the bootstrap that happens before the loader doesn't normally print very much to the screen. But if you trip into it, uh, so if your loader isn't found or isn't working, you'll get drop to this kind of funny looking prompt with like, it's like one or two lines and it's got like, it says what it was trying to load that didn't find or whatever. And it just says boot colon and nothing. If you put in there the path like slash boot slash loader dot old or boot set of s loader dot old, it will load that instead of the file it was trying to load that didn't work. Uh, and that will let you boot it up. You can also directly boot into the kernel from there. But remember in that case, Nothing from your loader.conf will be loaded, uh, which means on ZFS, you won't load the ZFS kernel module, and then you won't be able to boot the file system. But uh, yeah, there's that. Um, because I guess even boot environments might not help you if your loader is broken in the default boot environment. Mm. Uh, other useful trip um, is ZFS boot CFG which allows you to configure the system to boot off a different boot environment one time only. So you can do the upgrade in the new boot environment and say, on the next boot, try it. And it will erase that setting when it first tries it so that if it doesn't work, you just power cycle and it'll go back to what your old boot environment was. Which is yeah. super helpful. One, one time trial. And if it's not working, yeah. then well, you're back anyway. And if you like it, then you can set it permanently and you're in the new system. And also, there is also the, the, the issue of um, the boot uh, types if you are, are an EFI system or still on the BIOS boot system. Yeah, so if you're on EFI, you have a whole separate fat file system that you can copy or whatever. Um, and then the if you're on GPT, most of the boot code actually lives in a separate FreeBSD-boot partition, uh, which is easy to create. Uh, so the chat room mentions that that sounds like Nextboot. Uh, yeah, ZFS boot CFG is like Nextboot, but happens even earlier in the boot and is specific to ZFS. Uh, Nextboot doesn't work so well with ZFS because it works by modifying slash boot slash loader.conf. And because ZFS is so complicated, the bootloader can't write to ZFS, only read, unlike with UFS where it can still write. Uh, so mm. ZFS boot config works outside of the file system. So it's a little different. But yes, it is very similar to Nextboot. Yeah, but overall, I like Will's approach. I mean, I've been doing the dual boot thing when I was learning the BSDs, and at one point I was like, hmm, I didn't, I haven't booted that uh, Linux partition in a while, so I made the switch to FreeBSD, but I still, uh, at 
though before that I could switch back between the two to experience and copy files around and that's yeah keep doing that uh, experiment with the system try putting it back together if you broke it and uh, that's the only way we we learned it and sometimes the hard way sometimes it's frustrating sometimes it takes a long time um, but you will learn something every time and make it better the next time and over time you will have uh, become the same experienced uh, BSD user as we are. Cool. Thanks for that story and uh, uh, the encouragement. And next up is Peter with a fanless computer. Remember we had an episode about this or at least a title. Uh, he writes, Hi guys, long-time listener of your show. Thanks for keeping me up to date on BSD happenings. We use BSD internally and absolutely love it. Great. I was watching a recent episode entitled Silence of the Fans and noticed uh, you talking fanless PCs. So fanless PC are my deal here at silentpc.com. We've got a large selection of them with full-size desktop processors and they all work with FreeBSD. If you ask in the comments, I will even preload and test the hardware compatibility before shipping the system. Anyway... So here's the advertising part, but that's okay. Uh, check us out, and if anyone mentions BSD now in the comments at checkout, they get a $50 discount on a system. So here's the URL again, silentpc.com slash fanless-pcs. Thanks, Peter. Hey, that's great. If that's not BSD support from vendors, that's, that's a cool yeah. deal. I will bookmark that one <laughs> just in case for, for later. And, uh, yeah, next up is Ron. Uh, ZFS disk clone or replace or something. Uh, this goes, BSD now ZFS gurus. I mean, I think he means Alan. Um, <laughs> I have a small fanless box running hardened BSD 11.2. I have two disks, and the original install had the two disks mirrored. I installed Dragonfly BSD on one disk, ADA0, to test something out, knowing it could uh, boot from the second disk, ADA1, which still had uh, hardened BSD. Okay, experiment over, booted off ADA1 with no problem. However, and as expected, ADA0 is now in trouble. I tried zpool replace, but I got an error message saying that the disk needed to be manually repaired. Gpart shows ADA0 and Gpart showed ADA1 revealed different partitioning schemes, as expected. And he took ADA0 offline using the UUID and detached it and thought it would make ADA0 the same as ADA1. So he did a DD uh, of ADA1 to def ADA0. Uh, that worked and both disks are the same now. Uh, then added the new disk, but uh, it did a zpool and zroot of def ADA0 instead of zpool add zroot ADA0p4. Now he can't detach or take offline the new edition. Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. I simply want to remove ADA0, then create a mirror, and any help would be appreciated. So he posted zpool status and zpool, uh, yeah, his command that he used. Yeah, so you've actually got two problems there. A, you added the whole disk, not just the partition, so you don't have a spot for the boot code, uh, which is likely to cause you some other issues. Uh, and, yes, you've added a stripe. So in 11.2, Two, there is no way to undo that. Or is there? So, uh, device removal code is very new. Uh, this is a feature that just got added to ZFS. I think it might actually be in 11.2. Uh, but it's definitely not in 11.1. And yeah, it will yeah. definitely be in 12.0. Uh, so you might have to wait for 12.0, although I think it is actually in 11.2. Uh, so you can actually do device evacuation uh, and we'll copy all the data off ADA0 uh, over to ADA1. However, it's 
going to do it in such a way that there still be a virtual device there and it'll look weird. Um, yeah. Anyway, the correct command, what you wanted was not zpool add, but zpool attach. And that would have upgraded your 88.1p4 back to a mirror. Uh, I'm yep. guessing the only reason you got down from that was you actually did a zpool detach at some point uh, for the um, yep. uh, the device that was having a problem. Anyway, so if you have a new enough version, I think it's uh, zpool remove uh, zroot ADA0, and it will copy all the data that's currently on ADA0 over to ADA1P4. Uh, and then once that's done, you can... the Also... You don't want to DD the whole drive like that because you'll copy the ZFS labels and ZFS will think they're both the same disk. Yeah. It's uh, if you just want to mirror the partition layout, gpart backup ADA1 pipe, gpart restore ADA0 after you've already destroyed the one on ADA0, and it will just clone the partition layout without copying any of the data. And then you will be able to do this better. Yeah. Um, and it... If you don't want to wait uh, until the detached feature comes out, then you pretty much have to back up the whole pool and recreate it from scratch. Yeah. Now with the uh, mirror I keyboard. The, I think the feature is in 11.2 that you're running, is it? though. So it should okay, then be okay. Depending on how uh, how neat, uh, how much need you have for that pool to be ready. Uh, but at this point, it's just a stripe, and if one disk dies, all things are yes. gone. So, yeah. yeah. Your biggest problem here is that you know, every file you're writing there is basically being split across the two drives. So if one of them dies, you lose half of every file, which is not going to make your pool usable at all. So you definitely do want, do want to try to solve this. And the sooner you do it, the less data there is to relocate. Yep. So yes, uh, there is presentation on how the feature works at BSDCAN this year. So the slides and video from that are on uh, at the BSDCAN website. Mm-hmm. And demand page of ZFS or zpool actually have the distinction between zpool add and zpool attach. One is for the mirror, the other one is for... Um, right. Yeah, other. so attach adds yeah. an extra drive to an existing VDEV. So that'll mm-hmm. turn, you know, so zpool attach zroot 81p4, 80p4 would have added 80 uh to the mirror. Um, but you did zpool add, which adds a new VDEV, so you added a second strike. But now that you know it, you will never do this mistake again. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. Okay, next up is, and last in this uh, feedback and questions part, is Boston with a ZFS record size question. So, starting with this. Last time you briefly mentioned tuning and record size in ZFS. I would like to hear your recommendations about it. I have several data sets. In one data set, there are only mostly about 95% large compressed video files, about one gigabyte each. What would be a good record size for this data set? One megabyte? Bigger? Smaller? Uh, probably one megabyte. Um, going bigger requires some custom tuning, and I don't have much experience with it, so I wouldn't recommend it just yet. Uh, but yes, one megabyte uh, will save you about 7% space on uh, the metadata. Uh, instead of, you know, because when you write one megabyte block, you don't have to actually instead write eight 128k blocks and all their metadata and the metadata that points to them and the metadata that points to them all the way up. Uh, so you can do a relatively significant savings by, you know, saving terabytes of data on one megabyte records instead of 128k records. Yep. Okay. So that's video files. And in another data set, uh, there are pictures and videos from my mobile devices, size ranging from two megabytes, which is the average JPEG video or photo, to one gigabyte or more, some 4K video files. What would be good record size for this data set? Um, 
There's not much downside to using the one megabyte records for any files. For the whole uh, pool? You know, if the file's only, you know, 128K, it's actually only going to use a 128K record for it anyway. You're just setting the maximum record size, not the minimum. Yeah. Um, the times when you definitely want smaller ones are files where you're going to make changes to the middle of the file. If you're going to be changing the middle of the file, you want, uh, you know, if you're going to make a 4K change to the middle of a file, if you have a one megabyte record size, it's going to have to read the whole one megabyte record, modify the 4K somewhere in it, and then write that whole one megabyte record. Um, and if you then modify the next 4K too far apart where it's a separate transaction group, then it's going to read that whole megabyte again, change it, and write it out. And it can make your snapshots grow a lot faster and so on. So yeah. for things like databases and VMs, you don't want a large record size. Even though if your VM's a giant VMDK file or something, even though it's one big file, because the changes you're making to it are random and 4K usually, you want the smaller record size there. Uh, but anything you're archiving, it's totally safe to just do one megabyte records for everything. Yep. And yeah, these are the benefits or what he writes to correctly tune the record size. I mean, there's not much tuning to be had. It's just these two different types of, that Alan mentioned, either you're changing within a file or you make um, large changes to the file itself. I keep it at one megabyte and only for databases tune it. So I have um, that as a default set for the for the whole pool. All right, but it's good to know that. And uh, that's pretty much covering all the show that we have for this week. Um, and uh, again, if you have something, uh, a blog post, an article about any BSD that you might find interesting that we should cover, uh, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv or your questions that you have about any uh, aspect of BSD usage and we'll try to answer it in next week's episode or in a future episode whichever is uh, coming faster thanks for watching and see you next time see you next time